Hello, and welcome to Noise in the Groove, the origin of sound recording. I'm Ramsey Janini, and this is episode 10, Gladstone and the Undead Stenographer. Before I get started, I want to wish you a warm welcome back to the podcast. I hope you all had a good time with friends and family over the holiday period. And if you were alone, well, I hope you enjoyed yourself just as much as the rest of us. If your holidays were anything like mine, they were chock full of recorded sound. One starting point for my holidays was stepping foot on a Ryanair aircraft. What struck me was not the presence of recorded sound, but the lack of it. Every previous Ryanair flight I'd ever been on had been playing Bach's Brandenburg Concerto V as the passengers shoved their baggage and bodies into their allotted slots. My personal Ryanair ritual had always included taking my seat, reacquainting myself with the cartoon depictions of smoke and fire that Ryanair pretty much forced you to look at for the entire flight, Wondering why the cabin was so hot, then thinking, I normally love this concerto, but it doesn't feel quite right at the moment. Why is it always this movement of this concerto, followed by, what do the staff think about this recording? Well, as I insinuated, on my flight a few weeks ago, they weren't playing the Brandenburg Five as I took my seat. But the silence didn't last long before the pilot announced that there was going to be a delay of around an hour. Then it all clicked. I could hear the staff thinking, phew, delay, we don't have to play that stupid music today. Anyhow, I guess the moral of the story is, if Ryanair isn't playing Box Brandenburg 5, then expect a delay. Right, well, any lack of expected recorded music over my holidays was soon rectified by the usual barrage of ritualistic viewings and listenings of various films, television programs, songs, and albums. It's part of what makes the holidays the holidays, for me at least. But how did we get here? That remains the mission of this podcast, to delve into the depths of the past, specifically the stomping ground in time and space of one Sherlock Holmes, who my friends were so keen to watch on the BBC on New Year's Day. That is, of course, late Victorian London. So, where were we? Well, a couple episodes ago, we ended with the recording of the voice of Arthur Sullivan praising Thomas Edison for his marvellous new phonographs at the house of one Colonel Gouraud in London. From there, we took a little detour to the Volta Laboratory in Washington, D.C., where during the 1880s, Alexander Graham Bell and friends developed the improvements to Edison's recording process that enabled and encouraged Edison to mass-produce a commercial product out of the invention. In England, and by extension Great Britain and Europe, the campaign to create a market for the new machines was led by the aforementioned Gouraud, who was broadly instructed with generating publicity and creating the idea of the phonograph as an essential office tool a dictation machine that would work alongside the telephone and typewriter in a modern, mechanized workplace. As the example of Arthur Sullivan demonstrated, Gouraud was keen to initially use what modern marketers might call celebrity endorsement to promote the product. He and his associates worked hard to capture and then advertise recordings of the most prominent public figures they could find. And in those years, they managed to generate publicity out of recordings of figures as diverse and important as the poet Alfred Tennyson and Florence Nightingale. Well, it's quite easy to view their actions from a cynical perspective, but it seems they genuinely believed in the historical significance of the recordings they were making and publicizing. They were quite conscious that posterity, that's us, would forever be grateful for preserving the voices of such iconic public figures. And if they happen to make some profit while doing so, well, that's just good old American capitalism, ain't it? 
One of the earliest and most telling of such experiments was an 1888 recording of the then former and future Prime Minister, William Gladstone. For a bit of perspective for those of you unfamiliar with the name, he was born in the same year as Abraham Lincoln. And while comparing the two figures is only so fruitful, they are similar in the respect that Gladstone was renowned as a great orator in his day, and is considered now, as he was in his time, as one of the greatest ever British Prime Ministers. So, it's something like having a recording of Abraham Lincoln, and it reminds us that if Abraham Lincoln hadn't been shot, he might have lived long enough to have his voice recorded for us to hear. Imagine that. Let's listen to the recording. My dear Mr. So far as it lies in my power. So I repeat to say that the voice which I transmit to you is only the relic of an organ, the employment of which has been overstrained. Does the voice sound a little unnatural to you? Does it sound at all how you would imagine the voice of one of the greatest orators of his generation to sound? To me, not at all. And the problem isn't that what we're hearing is a relic of an overstrained instrument, as the voice declares in the recording. Indeed, this recording is a fake. Edison wanted to market the voice of Gladstone as an example of how powerful his technology was. But of course, a recording could only be in one place at a time. And even if a recording were made in perfect conditions, it would slowly deteriorate with repeated playbacks. Gladstone was recorded, and the words you heard were his words. It just wasn't his voice. Why didn't Edison use the original? Well, aside from what I've mentioned, the recording was an acoustic failure. Gladstone wasn't speaking loudly enough, and he wasn't speaking directly into the horn. Gouraud, perhaps through respect or fear, was unable to successfully record his voice. I don't want to make any ageist assumptions about the elderly Gladstone, who is clearly competent enough to run the world's largest empire a few years after the recording. All I'm saying is that I've been part of some quite awkward situations involving octogenarians in Skype. Just putting that out there. Anyhow, here's the actual recording. Much like the Arthur Sullivan recording, Gouraud records a short introduction, perhaps as much as anything to demonstrate how one should record. But the message didn't seem to get through. Have a listen for yourself. London, 18th December, 1888. From Colonel Bureau introducing Mr. Dayton. The phonograph salutation. The latest born of science and of American genius bends its knee of steel and bows its neck of iron in reverential homage before the veteran statesman of England.
So that was the real recording, and as you could, or should I say couldn't hear, it wasn't exactly a ringing endorsement for the practical use of the machine as a business or administrative tool. Nevertheless, Guro sent the recording to Edison along with the transcript, and also made use of the event, if not the recording, as best as he could locally as well. Within a few weeks, news and transcripts of the event began appearing in British newspapers, For example, an article containing the transcript appears as far away as the Glasgow Herald a few weeks later, on the 11th of January. As for the fake recordings, well, I found at least one public use of them from the time. In 1890, an article in Lloyd's Weekly newspaper described Gladstone addressing through phonograph a meeting of many thousand members of the Mutual Building Association in New York. The reporter claimed that all present heard the distinct periods of breathing pauses in Gladstone's voice. Well... If we assume the story is even true in the first place, that gives us at least one situation for which fakes might have been seen as necessary. More recently, the fakes, one of them at least, was played as the real deal in a documentary broadcast on national television in the UK. Oops. Anyhow, back to Guro and his campaign. Well, on the one hand, he was generating excitement with news of high-profile recordings of events like the Handel Festival and celebrities like Gladstone, But I also knew that in this case, hearing would be believing. We've mentioned in a previous episode that the late Victorian era was a time when scientific demonstrations were hugely popular forms of entertainment, which I compared to something like TED Talks today. Garot took full advantage of the format to not only generate excitement and interest, but also to direct the new idea of sound recording along commercially profitable trajectories, or at least to try to. This campaign began at his house, called Little Menlo, with demonstrations for invited guests and the press only. 
creating exclusive and high-profile events intended to reignite desire and curiosity in the public at large. Over the next few years, the phonograph show hit the road again, crisscrossing the British Isles and going to that public. Gro couldn't do it all himself, so he recruited the help of men with names like C.R. Johnston, William Lind, Arthur Sellings, Douglas Archibald, and Charles Statler. Collectively, they gave thousands of demonstrations to paying audiences in civic halls, lecture halls, scientific centers, and other public venues. William Lind alone presented over 770 times in over 600 cities and towns. If you remember way back in 1878, we attended a lecture about the tinfoil phonograph in Dublin. Just over a decade later, with a new machine and new commercial interests, were the demonstrations any different? Not really, but let's consider a typical example. One of Charles Statler's lectures was described in an article called The Phonograph in Bristol, which printed on the 15th of January of 1891 in the Bristol Mercury and Daily Post. The writer reported that the demonstration was the most interesting of a season of popular lectures given at the Merchant Venturer School, adding that despite them being usually well attended, in this instance not only were the galleries of the Great Hall of the school filled, but all extra space was utilized for standing room. The lecture began with an exposition of the phonograph's mechanics, as well as its history in the British Isles. Statler compared the phonograph to the human ear before providing examples of how the machine might be used in practice when commercially available. Of course, these examples corresponded exactly with Edison's objectives. But according to the report, Statler spent the majority of the lecture demonstrating the instrument. The demonstrations consisted of a varied program of instrumental and vocal music, transmitted through a large funnel. After grand applause, attendees were encouraged to remain after the lecture to listen to the phonograph through headphones. Due in part to the limitations of mechanical amplification, headphones provided the best conditions for listening to the acoustic technologies of the era, particularly when in noisy environments. For most of the attendees, that very well may have been their first opportunity to listen to music, or anything for that matter, through headphones. The phonograph in these demonstrations was opening up a new frontier that we all take for granted now. That is, a private acoustic space that exists somewhere between the ears, for the pleasure of one listener and one listener alone. That space first began to be charted, explored, and claimed in the 19th century, But that didn't happen in entertainment or in business realms. It happened much earlier in the century in a French hospital. In 1816, René Lenac invented the stethoscope in Paris. From that moment onwards, doctors began to specialize first in creating and exploring new worlds of acoustic signals from a human body, and then to analyze and define what the sounds meant. The stethoscope allowed doctors to examine the human body without invasive procedures, and use of the instrument soon became so widespread that the object became a symbol of medical practice itself as it remains for us today. So, headphones were around in the imagination, and almost everyone had experienced a doctor listening to their body with a dispassionate face. Perhaps many people would have had a go with a stethoscope somewhere along the line as well. And to follow a tangent tangent, in the years we're discussing, the British Medical Journal reported Gouraud experimenting with a Dr. Felix at St. Thomas's Hospital, in using the phonograph to create a library of medical and bodily sounds for diagnosis and teaching. So the phonograph entered the hospital, and the hospital entered the phonograph. As people began to first imagine and then use telephone, phonograph, and radio technologies in business and office environments, the operators needed a way to be able to focus on their personal acoustic communications in noisy places. Headphones not only solved the problem, but also reduced the general noise levels for everyone else around as well. 
but headphones also very quickly reared their heads with respect to a commodification of acoustic entertainment. By minimizing the numbers of listeners, even within a crowded room, it became much easier to ensure that people paid for the pleasure of listening. And while doing so, it generated desire and excitement among those watching a person or a few people enjoy a private acoustic space. With these comments, I'm specifically referring to what's been called the world's first jukebox. In 1890, two guys in San Francisco named Louis Glass and William Arnold combined an Edison phonograph with all their concepts of piano rolls and music boxes to create, well, the first jukebox as we know it. One feature that distinguished it from the music boxes of old was that not only did it play recorded sound, but also that you had to put a nickel in a slot to make it work. It became known, funnily enough, as the nickel-in-the-slot phonograph, and the concept is still around. On the original machine, like I said, they didn't want just anyone to be able to hear it with one nickel. So the machine featured four listening tubes, and the setup seemed to work perfectly in every respect. The two inventors made a small fortune off the machines, so they say. Thus, the idea of phonography was already beginning to prove financially successful for some, if on a small scale and in the U.S., But Edison wasn't content with selling a few phonographs here and there. He wanted every major office to buy multiple machines and thousands of cylinders to record onto, and he wanted this to happen across the industrialized world. No one ever said he wasn't ambitious. Let's return again to Gouraud in the UK, trying to make this idea a thing. We opened the Pall Mall Gazette back in 1888 on the 24th of July. As we sip our coffee, we read about the world's first newspaper interview by phonograph, featuring, of course, our dear Colonel Gouraud. According to the article, the questions asked and answers given were dictated directly into a phonograph, after which a typewriter prepared a typed manuscript from the recorded cylinders. This, conveniently, was exactly the concept Gouraud was trying to sell. The interview begins by outlining Edison's ideas before moving into a section provocatively titled The Extinction of the Stenographer. In the interview and in many articles that followed in various publications, Edison, Gouraud, and his cronies attempted to forge the idea that anyone who had stenographers on their payroll could promptly fire them and replace them with machines. Advertisements and editorials promised that, unlike stenographers, the phonograph would never make mistakes, never sleep, and would never tire or call in sick. Additionally, it would improve business efficiency through eliminating the need to translate shorthand notation for typists as words can now travel directly from a speaker's mouth to the ear of a typist, missing out the stenographic middlemen. While in theory these arguments had merits, in practice the technical limitations of the phonographs at the time meant that the machines just weren't up to the task. This was the same machine that quote-unquote captured the voice of William Gladstone. I definitely wouldn't want to be transcribing that recording in a busy office. Recording a cylinder required a deliberate act of speaking loudly into a receiving horn, and even then it could go wrong, as the Gladstone recording proved. Businessmen at the time would not have been able to simply record a meeting as per usual at a normal speaking voice, as was implied by Edison and his representatives. In addition to the acoustic limitations, the recording length limitations meant that meetings would have had to pause every few minutes to change cylinders, unless you had multiple machines ready to go. Well, I don't think Edison would have minded that. So, there are many reasons why it wasn't actually practical, but they pushed the idea as hard as they could for years and years in the early 1890s, perhaps in hope that the technology would quickly catch up with their promises. But it didn't. Not fast enough, anyway. 1893 is a very important year for us. As I mentioned, 1893 was the year that the machines actually went on sale in the UK, 
and that same year saw the publication of the fascinating, if far from impartial, first volume of The Phonogram, a monthly journal devoted to the science of sound and recording of speech. The second page of the first issue displayed a full-page advertisement listing 10 Reasons Why Edison's Phonograph is Superior to Any Stenographer. Among the 10 reasons suggested were speed, convenience, independence, economy, progressiveness, simplicity, tirelessness, and the subdivision of labor. In that day and age, in both newspapers and journals, advertising did not begin and end with advertisements. It definitely, as exemplified by the Grow newspaper interview, crept into the editorials as well. So we have to take everything we read in such sources with more than a grain of skepticism. As a case in point, the phonogram was published by the Phonogram Company Limited at 69 4th Street in London, which just so happened to be the address of the Edison Phonograph Company. The phonogram was a platform for promoting Edison's interests, but it did so by at least appealing towards a journalistic distance from those same interests. If the first issue was entirely sympathetic to the previously established Edisonian discourse, the second began to reflect upon earlier positions. Regarding the man-versus-machine line that they'd been pushing for the past five years, they now took a step back and outlined a vision where the intelligent stenographer would not be replaced, but rather aided himself by the device. This angle didn't quite take off either, certainly not back in 1893. To conclude these thoughts and this episode, let's jump forward to 1898. In that year, a newspaper article stated that the phonograph in America was supposedly used largely for business purposes, but that in England such usage had not caught on, adding that imaginative transatlantic reporters in want of a sensation had written more nonsense about Edison than any other subject. However, these very same criticisms were then used in the article to emphasize the reality and diversity of the newest Edisonian products. A penny in the slot machine to entertain the public, an educational phone to teach music and languages, and a concert phonograph to fill the Albert Hall. Five years after the commercial release of the phonograph, we are still traversing thin lines between editorial and advertisement. But while all this was going on, the article rightly stated that phonographs were indeed popping up and actually being used in the United States and England. Only, they weren't being used as planned by businesses and offices. Instead, recorded sounds were from the very beginning entering much more private spaces, literally through listening tubes and headphones, but also in the imagination. The phonograph began to appear in fictional and factual accounts that placed the machine not in offices, but in bedrooms and living rooms. We'll enter those private spaces in the next episode. But for now, as ever, thanks for listening, and goodbye. <laughs>